Good morning. This chapel talk really began about a month or so ago. Um, I was breaking down a chicken, right, the butcher. Um, and while I was separating the chicken into the different cuts, the thighs, the wings, I had the, my daily Bible reading app playing in the background. And while the different passages were being read, my mind was wandering. Experiencing same-sex attraction myself, I was mulling over the shortcomings of the affirming position, which upholds that same-sex marriage is compatible with Scripture. Breaking my thoughts, Matthew 16 came on. Of course, I was familiar with the account of Jesus rebuking Peter by calling him Satan. But I remember thinking then, it was a little harsh of Jesus. If not out of character by name calling, at least it was an overreaction. I found myself thinking, Jesus, all he wanted for you was not to suffer and die. Why such a strong reaction to such a tender concern? With my hands in the counter still soiled with raw chicken filth, it hit me. The same spirit that motivated Peter's remark, which led to his harsh rebuke, can also be found underlying the motivation for the affirming position. To illustrate this, let's turn to Matthew 16, 21 through 27. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come into the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So with this passage in mind, let's look to the affirming position. It should come to no surprise to you that I ultimately find the arguments for the affirming position from Scripture uncompelling. I remember picking up Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian, the summer after I graduated. I remember the weight of reading it. It was the first book that I had read that attempts to make the biblical case for same-sex marriage. I remember all the conflicting emotions I felt as I read it. Fear, confusion, relief, disappointment. I remember being afraid that I would be convinced, and then I would have to wrestle with the implications of that on my life. I also remember feeling both relieved and disappointed when I saw through the shallow arguments. I remember thinking, wait, is that really it? Are these the best arguments? And today I'm not going to get into the six passages of scripture where homosexuality is explicitly mentioned. And I have three reasons for doing so. First, because I simply do not have the time that it warrants. Second, many more qualified theologians have already done so. One book that quickly comes to mind is Sam Albury's book, is God anti-gay, which does so in less than 100 pages. But third and finally, I doubt that many people change their theology because of the new affirming interpretation of these passages. So instead, I want to show you how the underlying motivation of the affirming position borrows from Peter's faulty reasoning and how we should correct it. And the motivation is simple. Not being able to pursue same-sex marriage causes suffering. So the solution is to reinterpret scripture so that it allows for same-sex marriage. 
In his own words, Matthew Vines writes, One reason for losing confidence in the belief that same-sex relationships are sinful is that it no longer made sense to me. He explains further, The church's condemnation of same-sex relationships seemed to be harmful for the long-term good and well-being of most gay people. By condemning homosexuality, the church was shutting off a primary avenue for relational joys and companionship in gay people's lives. This wasn't the case for other sins. Avoiding other sins always seemed to work out for their long-term benefit. In conclusion, he writes, Such outcomes made it difficult for my dad to see how the church's rejection of same-sex relationships could qualify as a good tree that, according to Jesus, produces good fruit. Succinctly, I believe that this motivation, like Peter's, prioritizes human concern, which in this case is sexual desire, over the concerns of God, which are outlined in Scripture. Looking first to Peter in Matthew's account, from the passage, we see Peter's concern and compassion for Jesus clearly. After Jesus shared with him his bleak future, Peter corrects him because he couldn't possibly understand how Jesus being the Messiah would allow such a bad thing to happen to him. According to Peter and frankly all first century Jews, the Messiah's job was simple. He was to crush the oppressive Romans and establish his kingdom and glory and power. The only role death, self-denial, suffering played would be on the part of God's enemies, certainly not by Christ himself. So of course Peter would feel confident to correct Jesus. He didn't understand why Jesus had to suffer and he didn't want him to suffer. And I think this is where Peter, Matthew Vines, and his father all start together. They don't want to suffer because they don't believe it's how it's supposed to go. And it's easy to see that Peter was wrong because Jesus clearly rebukes him. But I don't think we should move past this so quickly. Was Peter wrong for not wanting Jesus to suffer and die? I don't actually think he was. In fact, he can't be because Jesus himself asks not to suffer and die. Before being handed over, Jesus pleads with the Father, asking for this cup, that is, the painful and shameful death that he told his disciples about, which led to Peter's rebuke, that that cup pass from him. Not wanting suffering is a deeply human desire, and it results from our our being made for Eden, not the fall. And not wanting other people to suffer is called compassion and empathy. Jesus is immensely compassionate. He sees people, all of them, and his heart is compelled toward them. He hates suffering. He hates suffering so much that he entered into it himself and took on our ultimate suffering so that we wouldn't have to. And I also think this desire not to see other people suffer comes from our own desire not to suffer. The immediate context of Jesus' rebuke is a famed passage where Peter is heralded as the rock and given the keys to the kingdom. This is a highlight for Peter. But immediately following, Jesus brings up his suffering and death again. Now, this would mean at least two things for Peter. First, the kingdom that he was just handed the keys to doesn't sound too great, too powerful, or quite honestly, all that stable. And second, if this dismal fate could be true for Jesus, it could also be true for him. So like any good friend and any human being, Peter doesn't want hard things for Jesus, and by extension, he doesn't want hard things for himself. And I think this makes very good sense, and it's all very relatable. And it's easy to draw the connection with the affirming argument. If God could ask someone to give up romantic and sexual love, then what might I have to also give up? Maybe you'll find yourself thinking, I don't want to believe in a God, much less worship him, who would deny someone happiness. So friends, if you're compelled by the affirming argument because you don't want people, including yourself, to suffer or be denied seemingly good things, 
I want to say clearly to you, I understand and I love your heart. I want you to cultivate and grow your compassion. Your compassion is not the problem. It's not what Jesus caused Jesus to rebuke Peter. So if compassionate motivation of not wanting people to suffer is laudable, which I think it is, then why was Jesus' rebuke so harsh? I think Jesus evoking Satan is significant. After all, what does Satan do? He breeds distrust between us and God. Remember back to Genesis 3. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And he appeals to our own desires and our own understanding. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Ultimately, Satan encourages us to build up our own kingdoms here and now, instead of humbly and eagerly looking forward to the coming of Christ's kingdom. Jesus isn't just name-calling here. He's drawing a distinction of kingdoms. Ultimately, there's our kingdom, which we build up by our own desires and is founded in the the kingdom of darkness. Or there's the kingdom of God, which is motivated by love and does even entail suffering and sacrifice, but for a future glory and our ultimate fulfillment of our desires. These are the two options, the two kingdoms, and here Peter is rationalizing from the former. So it's no surprise then that Jesus corrects Peter by describing the way of his kingdom with the words we have heard so many times before. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And Jesus is the embodiment of God's kingdom. So when Jesus asks the Father if there is any other way aside from suffering, he finishes with, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And this is the crucial distinction between Jesus and Peter and between Jesus and the affirming position. It's not, that our, compa- it's not our compassion that's the stumbling block, but when our compassion runs us to lead away from Christ's will. This is why even the compassionate motivation of the affirming position is so hurtful. As I've met with students over the years who experience same-sex attraction, a common sentiment they share with me is how discouraged they are by their peers at Covenant, who in response to hearing about their experiences, they immediately encourage them to live out of their same-sex desires. In your heart, you want to show compassion and love, but in practice, you end up being a stumbling block, just like Peter. So like Jesus, we must start from a motivation, not of reducing suffering, but by earnestly seeking to discern God's will, even in the face of suffering. And in this case, it means asking, is God's will really to ask those with same-sex desires to deny them? If this is not God's will, then Matthew Vines and all of those in the affirming camp are right, and we're heaping on undue suffering. So, are same-sex relationships outside of the will of of God for us? In order to discern this, we must consult his word. And in this case, we're starting from the beginning. In Genesis 1.27, it reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In that one verse, we learn three fundamental aspects of humanity. First, we were created. Second, we bear God's image. And third, we are gendered. All of these are relevant to the other and proceed from the former. How God designed us is as creatures to bear his image as gendered. I, as a woman, bear God's image through my femininity. Chaplain Lowe represents God through his masculinity. 
One gender wasn't sufficient enough picture, so God created woman and tasked all of us to bear his image through our different gendered particularities. And that doesn't result in stifling stereotypes, but rather opens up an array of all of the wonderfully unique complexities of our gendered expressions as male and female. In Genesis 2, we get a different angle on our creation. After declaring that it was not good for man to be alone, Scripture says that, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. The word there for suitable has many different variations. Maybe you've read corresponding to, compatible to, comparable to, fit, something along those lines. The word is difficult to translate because it expressed an idea of like opposites, and it represents the fundamental sameness and difference. All the animals had others like them in kind, but different in gender. But this was not true for Adam until the creation of Eve. Adam's joyful song notes this similarity and difference dynamic. At last, the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, so we have the sameness, bone of my bone, or our shared humanity. And then we have the difference, woman taken out of man, or our gender. And this not only just sets the stage of how humanity is ordered, but also how marriage is ordered. Immediately following this verse with the causal word, therefore, linking them, Scripture proclaims, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we aren't just talking, we don't just image God through um, our male and femaleness, but also this goes into marriage as husband and wife. Ephesians 5 summarizes, the husband must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. These calls overlap and are equally beautiful, worthy, and sacrificial, yet they are still distinct, and they're gendered in their distinction. From Genesis to Revelation, it's clear that God's design for marriage is between the covenanted relationship of man and woman. There are many things in scripture that are unclear, and reasons for believers in good faith to disagree. However, plainly, I just don't think this is one of them. So far, I've argued that God's will for marriage does, in fact, exclude same-sex relationships. But all of this amounts to God said no to same-sex relationships because he said so. Fine. He created us gendered, and our sexual and romantic relationships are supposed to reflect that compatible sameness and difference. But we still don't know why. If God made the whole world ex nihilo, we could venture to guess he could have designed sex to be given and received androgynously, or only spoken of marriage in gender-neutral terms. Yet this is another place where I take issue with Matthew Vine's reasoning. Remembering back to the example of Peter. Peter didn't understand why suffering was part of God's plan either, and Jesus corrected him all the same. His lack of understanding wasn't an excuse, and it's not for us either. So however unsatisfying a because I told you so from God is, it's sufficient for obedience. Romans 9.20 20, uh, follows the same logic. It reads, But who are you, to, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed you say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? So while frustrating, and not the least to Matthew Vines, I don't think we have to understand in order to obey. Yet. God does provide a reason why same-sex relationships are outside of his design for marriage. And to see this, we must understand the purpose of marriage. There are many good aspects and purposes to marriage. Companionship, bearing and raising children, co-laboring in ministry, the gift of sexual expression, even sacrificing for your spouse. But none of these hold a candle to the ultimate purpose of marriage. And that is to display God's love for us through the gospel in imaging Christ in the church. 
The climax of Ephesians 5, Paul connects Jesus to Revelation through marriage. He writes, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. And this changes everything. This is the starting point for understanding uh, marriage, not our desires. It's not ultimately about happiness, nor companionship, nor two consensual adults pleasuring each other in consensual ways. No, marriage since its inception has always been about picturing God's kingdom and picturing his love for his people. And we see that this Christ in the church dynamic reflects the corresponding to dynamic that we saw in Genesis between Adam and Eve. Christ is both like us in that he is fully human, yet distinct from us in that he's fully God. So how does this play out? In the picture of marriage, the husband represents Christ by dying for his wife, and the wife in turn represents the church by submitting to her husband. Does this mean that husbands are better because they get to play the role of Christ? No, (laughs) this is an analogy. It's a picture. It's a profound picture, but it's still a picture. Plus, no one can gain or lose their worth, right? Our worth comes from our imago dei, which, remember, was number two of the fundamental aspects of humanity. Okay, fine, but isn't this at least old-fashioned and even potentially abusive? I'm borrowing from John Tyson here, but the husband could say to the wife, wife, submit. But then the wife could respond, husband, die. Yeah. Yeah, and, and guys, what's sad is there actually are many marriages like that, and it's devastating for everyone involved. But that's not God's design. God's design is for mutual and voluntary, yet distinct expressions of sacrificial love. Husband and wife are not interchangeable. Wife and wife can't image Christ in the church any more than husband and husband. Okay, but can't two women and two men reflect Christ's love for each other? Yes. (laughs) In fact, we should do that. John 15 comes to mind. Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friend. That is a beautiful expression of God's love, but it's not the picture of marriage. Marriage is something different. In each spouse, they are reflecting this dynamic that is true for Christ in the church. So this necessitates this element of sameness and difference. So maybe I've successfully convinced you that from design and from the telos of marriage, God's will doesn't include same-sex marriage. But how is this good news? Plus, someone may argue, you may experience same-sex attraction, but at least you experience enough opposite-sex attraction, right? At least enough to get married. And that's true. I do love my husband. I am attracted to him. It would be foolish for me to get married if this wasn't the case. So, how is the biblical view of marriage good news for those who don't, or maybe even won't ever marry, or even experience opposite-sex attraction? This, I think, is at the heart of the issue. And while I've argued that it's not a sufficient enough place to reason from, like Peter did, I still think it imposes an important question. Secondary, yes, but still important. And I think scripture does offer a compelling reason for this. So, how is this good news for those without opposite-sex attraction? It's good news because while the picture of marriage is exclusive and limited— What it's picturing is inclusive for all of those who are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, marriage is so great because we all have a wedding in our future. Ed Shaw, who exclusively experiences same-sex attraction, writes, 
I used to see weddings as advertisements for a life that would never be mine. And as a result, I found them rather painful. Now I see them as trailers for an experience that will one day soon be mine. And in a much better way than any of the hundreds of weddings that I have been to over the last 25 years. They are a picture of the true happily ever after ending that is possible for any of us who have our lives joined to Christ forever. And no one who has seen the movie is satisfied with the trailer, whether or not you see the trailer this side of heaven. But this will cost you. Not seeing the trailer isn't much in the grand narrative, but here and now it feels like everything. You will have to deny your desires, even when they feel so right and so natural. Jesus is upfront about this. He doesn't downplay or sugarcoat the cost. This is the, but for those who lose their life for my sake will find it bit. So it will cost you in this life, but it is the only way you will find your life. Remember, this is what repentance is. It's turning from your sin, dying to your sin, and turning to Christ, living into righteousness. And for those whom God calls to celibacy in this life, they have the privilege of reminding the rest of us of the sure promise and true gloriousness of our wedding day. They are witnesses that the consummation of Christ and his church is so real and so compelling that they are even willing to forgo marriage in this fleeting life for it. Sam Albury writes, If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. So don't be tempted to exchange this grand and inclusive narrative of marriage for anything less. Everything else falls short into the human concerns that Peter was trapped in. Instead, set your eyes on the coming of Christ's kingdom, the ultimate love story. So the biblical sexual ethic with the hope of the gospel is good news. Because of Christ's sacrifice and pursuit of you, the ultimate marriage is awaiting you, and you don't have to compromise on scripture nor ignore the reality of your same-sex attraction to get it. Yesterday morning, I was wrestling with how to conclude today. When God brought into mind the words of Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, perfecter, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I wept as I thought about that. I knew that I wanted to leave you with a charge to remember our collective wedding day, but I cried because I realized Christ is eagerly waiting too. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ died so he could have the joy of marrying his church? Which, if you are a follower of Christ, means you. Christ is waiting to marry you. And this is true whether or not you get married this, on this earth. If you are never able to pursue a sexual or romantic relationship, remember Christ is relentlessly pursuing you. This morning we sang one of my favorite hymns, What Wondrous Love Is This? When we are tempted to exchange our souls for anything less than Christ in eternity with him, remember his love for you. Remember that our sacrifices and suffering is temporary. Yes, God will ask you, all of you, regardless of your sexual desires, to deny these desires for a season and for some for your whole life. But don't believe the lie our first parents believed. God isn't lying to you. He isn't holding out on you. Friends, if there's no heaven, we're most to be pitied, as Paul says. 
And you can bet one of the, the areas that we'll be most pitied is for our stingy sexual ethic. But our human concerns aren't all there is, and they don't compare to what's waiting for us in Christ's kingdom. This is the hope. This is what makes the gospel, even with its sexual ethic, such good news. And remember, friends, our groom is eagerly awaiting us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is true. Thank you that even with suffering, even with things that feel so right, that we can give them up for you. And Father, thank you that this is part of your good design. Father, I pray that we think about this, that we, not coming primarily for our desires, but that coming for a desire to honor and love you and obey your word, Father, that we would make even hard decisions. And Father, cover us with your love. In moments that feel hard, that feel hopeless, that lead us to despair, Father, send your spirit. We follow in Christ's suffering, but your scripture also says that we, we follow in his comfort as well. Father, I pray especially for those who experience same-sex attraction in our community. I pray that you would allow them to be honest before you and with themselves and even with dear friends. Father, I pray that they would be encouraged in your word, that their desires are not in vain, that they are hoping for a marriage, Father, but that marriage is to you. Father, I pray that you be with them, that you strengthen them. And I pray for the rest of this community, Father, I pray that they would seek your will, that they would go alongside those of us who suffer in this way, that they would encourage us, and that they would be a friend when we need it most. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you that even in the hard realities of this world, we have hope and we have a future. And thank you for wedding yourself to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.